Hello, my name is Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and welcome to The Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to make places worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings as much as the buildings themselves. Today, I'm going to be talking to Rafe Larson, founder of the Future of Small Cities Institute, which was born out of a series of talks held at the Troy Innovation Garage in New York State in 2019-2020. I actually met Rafe and his wife many years ago on a train across Canada. He went on to become a best-selling novelist and journalist, writing widely on cities in transition, including London, Detroit, Sarajevo, Los Angeles, Havana, and Gothenburg, while I went on to write about architecture. Now, curiously, we've ended up on the same train again, and in this conversation, we compare notes on the shared urban challenges and opportunities of post-industrial places in the USA and the UK. From car dominance to the impact of the internet on shopping, and the importance of attracting not just any, but the right kind of investment into small cities that are on the post-COVID ascent. But before I talk to Rafe, I want to share that this podcast has been supported by IE University. And here's a quick word from the Dean of IE University School of Architecture and Design, Martha Thorne. At the end of the program, she's going to tell you a bit more about their online global master's in real estate program and their scholarships. So do stay tuned for that. So Martha, tell me about IE School of Architecture Design and why you're keen to partner with the developer. Christine, I think our school and the developer have lots of synergies. I would say, um, first and foremost, the idea of creating sustainable and equitable environments is, is something that we both are very interested in. Our love for the city, the ability to learn from the city and from many places to learn from each other. And then finally, I'd say that you're very entrepreneurial. Um, the developer has an entrepreneurial mindset that's very close to everything we do at IE, even at IE School of Architecture and Design. The ability to see opportunities where other, sees, other people see challenges, I think, is what brings us together. And we have this, of course, in our Global Master in Real Estate Development Program, this entrepreneurial spirit, this holistic look at the city. So it's great to be aligned uh, at IE School of Architecture and Design with the developer. And I really hope that all your listeners will visit us, will learn more about our programs, and especially the Global Master, the part-time program in real estate at IE School of Architecture and Design. Um, my name is Rafe Larson. I uh, have recently founded the Future of Small Cities Institute, which we're looking in particular at the um, the challenges and opportunities of of small and mid-sized cities, mainly like sort of post-industrial legacy cities. Um, previously, before that, I was a writer, a novelist, and a journalist. Um, and I live right now in Troy, New York, which is near Albany in upstate New York State. So what is a small city as opposed to a suburb? What are the differences that you would find? Can a small suburb grow into a small city? Yeah, I think there's a lot of probably definitions that folks have. I I think a small city that we're looking at were established urban centers that had some kind of legacy manufacturing built into them. So they often have like, um, and often these like manufacturing or industries predated cars, right? So they have a downtown that's quite actually inherently walkable um, and quite compact. Uh, The kind of uh, car culture and car industry and infrastructure was layered on top of them. So sometimes awkwardly, right? So parking is not always great in these kind of compact downtowns. And then, of course, the phenomenon of the suburbs would then subsequently layered on top of that, right? So you had the cars and then you had the ability for people to live, you know, 10 miles outside. So... What's interesting is oftentimes you have these like small cities that are grouped, like there are a couple of them together, and then a ring of suburbs has developed around them. So, and that has created this whole kind of symbiotic sprawl where you have the old city itself. Um, then sometimes you'll have suburbs and then it'll get rural quite quickly, almost in the European style. And then you'll have more suburbs from another. So I, I think I don't, the, one of the big problems, particularly in U.S. Um, 
you know, question of like how we're going to manage our our future in terms of sustainability is addressing this land use question, right? How do we at all tackle the question of land use and and our sprawl and our, our suburban situation and our baked in commutes? I don't know how to tackle that like as a whole. It's, that seems like an insurmountable problem. One of the ways I think to address it is, I think, to make our small cities places we want to be, right? Because they were they there was for a long, you know, for several decades to finish the 20th century, they were drained and they were seen as uh, places you didn't want to be, as manufacturing and all these kind of in- industries died out. You were you were left with these vestiges of industry, like abandoned factories and old railway lines and alleyways that, that were seen as like real detriments to any sort of growth. Um, and now we're starting to, have to see a shift in mindset. Well, like maybe small cities and mid-sized cities have these these legacy assets that could actually be really useful. When you talk about that period in which they were being drained, is that the big box store? Is that the out of town shopping? Or what do you see uh, beyond a kind of sense of them being feeling a little bit sad and tired? Uh, you know, what what was the what were the forces draining these small cities? I think there were a lot of forces, entangled forces, and I'm not like a urban historian. So you probably would get a smarter, more, <laughs> more robust answer for someone who knows what they're talking about. But I think, you know, beginning in the 1950s, post-war, there was a housing boom. There was a housing shortage and a housing boom. That's when you start started to see the U.S. suburbs um, explode, right? So we were building tons of houses, not all of it good housing stock. And this, and it sort of started in Detroit, this, this dream of the like, single family home, the middle class life, right? You know, you can have a yard and you can drive into town and, uh, and, and have your job too, you know? Um, and then often what happened was that the, I think this coincided with the decline of the classic industry and manufacturing jobs. Um, so sometimes they would move out to the suburbs or sometimes they would go start you know, start to go overseas or, you know, this was like a 20 or 30 year decline. So there was a, and then this also coincided with a lot of the kind of racial tensions where, you know, in the 60s, you saw these like race riots and and this kind of white flight to the suburbs. So there was a lot of like um, economic and social and infrastructural forces that drained a lot of these like, quote unquote, rust belt towns that were, had a kind of one viable model of urban growth and, um, you know, ur- urban sustenance, the rug really got pulled out from underneath them. The jobs disappeared, the affluence jobs just disappeared, and it's, and it's a cycle, right? So you drain the cities, you drain the tax income base, you get start getting bad schools, you get crime. So for a lot of these cities, big and small, this was kind of an inescapable um, uh, cycle that, that has lasted until now. Um, I think the problem with small cities this is both a small opportunity is that they don't have the resources necessarily necessarily to like overcome uh, the kind of bus cycles, right? The economic declines, they don't have any buffer zone. They're, they're always like, like a small business, right? They're sort of just, their head's just above water. So um, they can be really hammered by, for instance, like the um, 2009 economic crisis. A lot of them still haven't recovered, you know, because they don't have that kind of, um, it, without state and federal assistance, which, Again, the U.S. is not really good at providing. So, um, so there's, you know, so what? What I guess one of the questions is like, what is the model of revitalization for these Rust Belt cities, right? If you don't have manufacturing and industry to turn in, turn to, like, what are some of the the models that we can look at? And where would you put the money if you had it? I guess is the other uh, question that would come out of this idea that, you know, if you were going to spend in one area, but if we come to that, um, you, you keep saying, you know, and this is the story until now. And that kind of sounds like this is like great dot, dot, dot of opportunity. Is this um, something that was happening already? Or is this a, a post COVID, um, an acceleration through COVID of, uh, of, of some kind of resurgence on the horizon? What are you seeing? Yeah, I think it was pre-COVID, and and I'm just speaking. I, I think probably you can you can tell me what's happening in the UK, but I think this is a phenomenon probably worldwide that we're seeing, and I'll and I'll limit my kind of case studies to New York State. Um, so you you have New York City, right, which um, has always been this kind of global hub of you know 
multiple industries and multiple kind of centers of culture and fashion and so forth. Um, but I think a lot of my age group, right, <clears throat> they, they spent their 20s and 30s there. They had a family and they just very quickly started getting priced out. Even, you know, middle, middle class, you know, upper middle class people can't afford, nor necessarily or do they want to have um, a, a kind of life in the city, which would require them to have all this kind of other built-in infrastructure to, in order to succeed. So I moved out of the city in 2009. And I felt like I was sort of on the vanguard of my, my kind of friend group. Um, I bought a house upstate, not really knowing what was going to happen, whether that was even viable, what was, you know. And slowly, I've seen people started being like, you know what, I'm going to go to this small city, you know. And so these small cities, and, and they're part of a larger trend, these small cities, which ha- were kind of in shooting distance of, of New York City, started to accumulate this kind of social um, capital and like um, civic and, you know, nonprofit entrepreneurs who would start places like the Good Work Institute or, you know, this really cool cultural institution in Hudson, New York called the Basilica or, and they're, they have this sense that they can make an impact in the city in a way that they couldn't necessarily in New York City um, and that they can connect with the community in a really meaningful way. The downside, I think, of this is that there are people living in all these cities who have been struggling. There's communities that have, you know, a lot of the river towns along Hudson are are very diverse. There's a strong African-American population there that moved up there because they were priced out previously of, of New York City. And so as these demographic trends change and you start to see more affluent people bringing their like highfalutin ideas about like what they want a street to look like and everyone should bicycle everywhere and so forth you're you're seeing a collision of of really interesting ideas and and cities are grappling with what does it mean to develop what does it mean to um displace what does it mean to be inclusive all the, all the questions that urban designers always grapple with but i think the point is, is that these cities are coming online in really interesting ways um, and trying to figure out that particular, I think one of the challenges of, as we said about small cities, they don't always have a big budget. So they often lean into organic ecosystems of partnerships, right? So nonprofits, um, arts institutions, uh, civic organizations, neighborhood advocacy groups that sort of step in and meet the capacity issues that the city doesn't have so that maybe they don't have a planning department. So a group of concerned citizens in Hudson's created the like, um, you know, complete streets uh, initiative that during the pandemic. I I think that, you know, in answer to your question, the pandemic has accelerated all of these trends. So more and more people are moving out, like people are really, uh, the, the, small cities are really strapped and they're like, okay, how are we even going to make main, our little main street work? What is, but they're also, it's also facing us, causing us to face really crucial, I think, crucial concepts like what kind of density do we want in our small towns and cities? What is public space? Like the U.S. has a really weak sense of public space, not like Europe. We, we're not good at it. We've never been good at it. We've like, we worship private space. So we're trying to suddenly like reimagine public space here, I think. So in that sense, there's a huge opportunity, right? We're at this inflection point coming out of the pandemic. There's going to be money. There's going to be an infusion of money. So we have this opportunity to be like, okay, what do we want our communities to look like? To speak to your idea that there's kind of a global trend, we've seen similar things in London. I mean, I think there's an interesting survey actually that I just read by Arab that said that Londoners, 41% of Londoners spent some portion of the pandemic out of the city, which is just an, an insane number when you know how big London is. But um, in addition, before that, we had places like Margate along the seaside, some of the seaside towns that are within shooting distance have in many instances, high speed connections back in where you had artists and other uh, nonprofit organizations, arts institutions going to these seaside towns who have been part of the story of decline for a very long time. And then suddenly you know, found new life in these uh, people who have been priced out. And then that same um, tension where these are, have been traditionally very deprived places uh, without this budget. So, you I'm know, I'm fascinated by that- how London like constantly expands. I remember once I was like living in um, the, in the Netherlands uh, and I want to fly to London. And so I found a very cheap flight to uh, a London airport that I'd never heard of, but it called itself London Airport. But it was like literally at the mouth of the Thames, like on the sea. So I flew, it was like a 20 minute flight from Amsterdam, but then I had to take like a four hour train into London. <laughs> it was like, 
I don't even want, you know what that airport's called? It's like, is it's it like South the, End? Was it South End? It was, it was like, I could see the sea. It was like where the river comes in. <laughs> I don't know what it, it was like an old decommissioned military base that was like now like London's fifth airport, you know? And it's like, I don't know. <laughs> it was crazy, but yeah. Uh, yes. And I think, but you raised that question, which is, you know, we did that thing within London where we moved to, you know, these kind of neighborhoods that were cheaper uh, and then their prices went up and now everybody's looking around for the next you know lovely you know bit of seaside or bit of countryside they can move to so so where does uh, affordable housing gentrification the inflation of prices where does that fit into this this story of um, small cities and and what do we want to learn from the experience of big cities um, what can we bring to you know if they're about to go through um, an urban renewal what can we avoid um, or learn from uh, in terms of the perils of regeneration in you know pushing other communities out? Where do they go? Yeah, it's a really good question. And <clears throat> so last year we did an event on gentrification, and we brought up um, an, an an activist, a neighborhood activist, and an academic from Washington D.C., which has gone through a pretty over the last twenty years really intense. Uh, form of, gen- I mean, it's a, it's one of the largest primarily African-American cities in the U.S. and has been really intensely gentrified neighborhood by neighborhood. So they have a really robust understanding of, of gentrification. They have a whole language around it, like what constitutes development, what constitutes development without displacement? How do you encourage that? Like, what are the zoning laws? What um, stipulations should you put for new kind of developers who are building market rate housing and how, what percentage should be below market rate and all this stuff. So we brought her in and I was watching people in, in our city kind of listen to her. And it was like something didn't compute with them because they, in a lot of these small cities, there's been such a period of disinvestment and such a cycle of kind of boom and bust that they're like, any development is good development. Like that, that lot has been vacant for 30 years. Like someone finally wants to build on it. You, like, hallelujah, you know? So the, it almost seemed like the gentrification question was like two steps beyond them. Like, what are you telling me? We're going to like start saying no to people that, who want to invest in our place. But I guess the point was now, right now, when you're starting to see development, this is the time when you have to kind of lay your, your, your flagpole in and say, this is the kind this is what we value about the city. This is why developers are coming here, right? Which is that it's affordable. Artists can live here. It has a really diverse population. There's like weird people wandering around. Like we want to preserve that so that it doesn't become so we don't see the kind of blight that London's seeing where it's like whole neighborhoods are empty because they're filled with like overseas investment apart like flats and apartments, right? Um, but they're like, that's so far from our thinking that it's so it's hard to get people to kind of jump two steps ahead to understand that in order to move forward, we really have to have like a more, like a longer term plan. Um, I think you're starting to see it, but it's, you know, like anywhere else, people are really focused on the short term. And uh, so they're like, oh, we're great to get people wandering around. And they're, they're not so much thinking about like, well, that's going to be too many market rates, you know? So it's, it's an ongoing challenge. And the other challenge is like, how, like, what are, what are our tools to prevent gentrification, right? And are they av- are they viable and available to small cities that have limited capacity? So some of the things I mentioned, zoning, um, you know, d- uh, guidelines for developers, um, education is a huge one, I think, you know, because that's the, the big thing that you see is that a city will be revitalized or, re- you know, regenerated, but the school system will still be really poor. Um, and you will have not seen investment in education so that like a lot of millennials will move downtown. Right. And then as soon as they marry and start having kids, they're like, they're out of there. Right. Or they're going to go to the suburbs. So how do you make a city a healthy place where someone can stay in the downtown throughout their whole lives? That's a big question. Does remote working also create a challenge presuming that these places that people are working at um, are located in downtown New York or other big centers, uh, which means that to a certain extent, you're pulling a salary from there and maybe you're buying your groceries and you're paying some you know, property taxes. But aside from that, the bulk of the economic activity is still centered in a major center. 
I mean, is there is there the opportunity for, you know, do we see clusters, you know, forming around that? Or is it a bit like, you know, it was always disappointing, I think, for some neighborhoods that ended up with huge um, Silicon Valley businesses based there, because actually they found that the economics around that, it didn't really trickle down to the immediate neighborhood. And it seems to me that we've got all of these uh, great opportunities to work from these small places all over the place, but our businesses are not actually based there. So how, how much good are they really doing in that immediate center? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, and, the, and like the, the future of work, I think will be one of the big storylines coming out of the pandemic, right? Um, because yeah, people can live in these small cities within three hours of a big, big city and maybe go in once a month. And that's now like a truly viable um, way to live that wasn't pre-pandemic, right? So in some ways, I think you could see the future of remote work and just in general, the future of flexible work that, that challenges this model of like, well, the, the, every company has a home base like, and they rent office space and it's a permanent home base. I think you're going to see much more sort of um, uh, larger companies having sort of diverse centers, right? Where they have one team here, they have one team here, it might move, they might not have permanent office space, they might like, you know, the, the, the future of commercial office space is going to be interesting to see, right? Um, it does raise a large question to me about equity, right? That just in general, we've seen a lot of businesses and people be able to pivot their their stuff online and but that you have to have the resources time capacity training to do that so the businesses that have not been able to go remote have really suffered so that's i think that kind of that's going to be an increasing like inequity gap in work and we have to really address that i think going back to your question about like does this really you know, like, does this really help small cities or are we just sort of creating satellites for the main industry in big cities? I think one of the things that um, development organizations are looking at, and this isn't particularly true by Mass Inc. Uh, in Massachusetts, is it's a model, actually a European model called polycentric regionalism, where you don't have this all the centered business in a big center like London. You have it clustered in sort of groups of medium and small sized cities, right? So instead of these like commuter rails that just go in and out of of the city, you might have yeah, you might have one in Margate, and you might have one in Bath, and you might have one you know so that people are sort of moving back and forth between these mid sized cities. Um, and that kind of lifts up the whole region. And I think it's more livable. Uh, you, you, you're not having these kind of one-dimensional commuting lines. You're having people moving back and forth. And you're still able to have the benefits of clusterism because I think, you know, remote is challenging in that totally remote. You don't have that kind of, you know, there's a reason that think tanks all have people in the same room and serve them coffee and bagels and stuff. It's like people, that's how ideas are made, right? So you want, you want those like idea centers still. I think there are more models for them is, is the point, I think. We've had kind of planes flying into not London. We've had these, you know, rails connecting these different places. You've talked about cars. You've talked about these city livers turning up in these smaller cities and demanding bicycles everywhere. Where do cars and uh, great transport infrastructure fit into the, um, I guess, small city debate or um, challenges uh, and opportunities? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I think the US, this is like the elephant in the room for the US, right? We're, we're in love, we're in love with our private vehicle. Um, it's how we've built our, our highway system. It's how everyone gets around. It's how we built our cities. Like, particularly in these smaller cities, there's an expectation that you can park your car for free on the street within one block of where you're going. Um, and that that's sort of like an expectation. So moving, even just moving people around that simple expectation, like I was talking, like one of the voices in sustainability in Albany is the um, chief executive of the parking authority who runs all the parking garages. That's the kind of twisted thing where we are right now. It's like, he's one of the like, he's like, well, we're trying to get people to be comfortable parking within three blocks of where they want to go. Because actually shifting people from walking one block or half a block to three blocks is quite a profound 
engagement opportunity where they're like suddenly walking past storefronts and actually walking. And if you can get them to three blocks, maybe you can get them to not bring their car in. And so that's the kind of incremental sort of cultural shifts that we're looking at. I think, again, like small cities, if we can do them well and design them well, they can offer these little prototype prototyping pockets of what like not having a car might, might mean. Um, I could bike to work. I could walk to work. Um, in Albany, for instance, uh, there's a lot of developments that are going on downtown that are really aimed at people who don't want cars. And it's a huge cultural shift. Albany is the, the capital of New York State. 100,000 people work in the capital every day. They all live in the suburbs. So that's like 100,000 people coming in, parking, and never really having contact with the city itself. So even just getting like 10,000 of those people to live downtown and then walk to the state capital... But it's like weird. There's like weird. Uh, I was talking to someone and I was like, why don't you walk? And he's like, well, it's uphill. You know, we have these like weird narratives in our head that like walking is impossible or like, and like you will, for some people, you will rest that steering wheel from the cold, dead hands of the American, right? Like to get their, like that commute in their own private vehicle is something that they like cherish and it's their ver- version of church in some ways. So that's going to be a chat. And as I said, it's really tied to how we just design like where people live, the suburbs, like you need a car. Um, I think one of the challenges towards sustainability is not necessarily just swapping out like every combustion engine car for an electric car and being like, good, done and dusted. Like we've done it. It's like, no, we have to actually have to change the way that we move. We can't just drive everywhere. We have to... So there, there are huge challenges around just like the the visioning of moving bodies through the world that I think needs to happen, you know, in the next couple decades for sure. Can we talk about the other thing Americans love? The shopping mall. What's mm-hmm. happening with the mall and, and how does the mall uh fit in? Is it does it still fit into the conversation around small cities? You talked about how they they still have what we would call a high street, um, a kind of you know, a downtown uh core. So maybe they're already different because they kind of predate the shopping mall, but they probably got the same issue that other suburban places do where the mall, I mean, in the mall is another thing that, um, that we associate with American culture. Is that still, does it still have a hold over people's imagination? Are they leaving the mall? How are the malls doing? Yeah, it's really confusing, right? Because I think like the storefront, like equivalent of high street shops in the U S are struggling. Um, and that's, that was true pre pandemic. Like, commercial real estate in New York City was astronomically expensive, but just, you know, a lot of companies were just saying, we can't do it anymore. It's not a viable form of like commerce. Everyone's buying things online. And yet there's a sort of wild agreement around everyone who's in cities that like the shop front and the like boutique stores are what are a crucial ingredient to that alchemy of what makes a city a city, right? Like downtown Troy is having its like, like little renaissance because when you walk down River Street, there's like, the place where you can drink wine and paint and there's the place where you can get a great ice cream and there's the cute little restaurant. If those people, if those places disappear, like what are we talking about when we're talking about a city? Then you have the like the classic malls, which are also struggling because um, they're based off of a model of like, that's where everyone goes and they come out of the mall with their like 6,000 bags into their like minivan, right? And I think that model is also not working um, either. So, um, but we've sort of put our, at least for the time being, we've put a lot of our eggs in the, that mall's basket. So I think we're at a confusing inflection transition point. Um, what's in, interesting to me is that even the malls have become centers of just like getting stuff done. Like if you're actually trying to run errands like to the dentist or to the doctor or getting your license renewed or whatever, all these things, they're all now next to the mall. So in some ways, the suburbs have become the cities and the city is now the suburbs. So like people have said, like Albany is a suburb surrounded by cities. All these like, the, you know, if you want to get any, anything, if you want to buy a car, you, wanna, you have to go to the suburbs to get it done. So that's kind of disappointing because like you have to drive there, you don't have any sort of collisions and you park in big parking lots. I'll be interesting to see how we will rethink the mall in the coming decades because I think they're a really interesting opportunity to think about like maybe uh, 
indoor growing, right? They could become farms for urban spaces. They could become affordable housing. They could, there's like, we can repurpose them. A lot of malls have just died, right? Um, And use them in, in interesting ways. So I think, again, just like work, like retail and commercial space is going to shift pretty, pretty massively over the next 15 years. You mentioned land use, you mentioned dense, density, um, and then also the rise in internet shopping. And I wanted to, to bring up that kind of architecture and infrastructure of the internet, which has a significant impact on cities. I can't remember what the figure was, but when we looked at London traffic, so much of it was just delivery. Uh, and of course, that's going to impact these small cities just as much as anywhere else, where in fact, so much of the traffic is bringing stuff in uh, that kind of um just that footprint of of ordering and doing that shopping online and bringing things to the to the door, um, and of course that's an opportunity for those shopping malls to be become distribution centers. But you know when we talk about the, maybe we get the individual to walk, a lot of that has to do with getting the parcel to be driven to them as well, which is still another um, another car use. So I mean I guess that's a question. Where does that architecture and infrastructure of the internet is that on the radar? Is it too soon? Are people starting to talk about that in terms of the impact of that? And um and how does that impact the the story of of land use and sustainability if really this thing we consider to be virtual has an enormous footprint and is actually you know sh- shaping in, you know, in Rem Coolhouse is saying it's shaping, it's reshaping the countryside. Um, but, you know, if we're all living in the cities and the internet is living in the, in the countryside, that doesn't necessarily solve the land use problem that you, you mentioned at the beginning of the talk. So I guess I'm not sure that had a question in it. I guess the mm-hmm. question is, you know, where do yeah. you see the internet yeah. um, as a problem uh, in, in the development of these cities? Um, yeah, so I think there's two kind of solutions for that. One is, so Troy, the city where I live, has this farmer's market that has been hugely, uh, you know, I, so I lived in London from like 2000, uh, for a couple of years in 2002, 2004. And that was, that, I felt like that was sort of when the markets were just, like the farmer's markets were just taking off, you know. Um, there was the one at London Bridge and there was, and now they're probably all over the place. But um they're catching on in cities, uh, small cities across the U.S. as well. And, you know, they have all kinds of benefits, right? They, they inherently tie people to a kind of local economy that they weren't maybe um, aware of. You can meet the vendors that like live near you, the farmers and so forth. So I think there's a, there's a model for those farmers markets to get a little bit more savvy in terms of their their delivery interface and their ability for people to order local really easily and, and, you know, not necessarily become like an Amazon, but to make it so that if people are at all partial, have any sort of thought, like we should really source this locally, they can do so quite easily, you know, like make that, make streamline that, you know, even if they can't show up at the farmer's market, maybe there's like a virtual version of the farmer's market where they can just swing by and pick up their order, you know. So I think becoming a little bit more smart about our local economies, because if we value that, and I think we haven't valued that, particularly in the US, if we value that as like, above all, I want to, I'm willing to pay, you know, X 50 cents, $2, $4 more if it's locally sourced because I care about X, Y, Z, making that an easier choice to shift into. Similarly, I think places like Amazon, you know, Amazon rose out of like the, the like orgasmic joy of being able to get anything, anytime, anywhere, right? I can get this and it's so cheap. Like I am very, I'm guilty of this. I ordered for, I ordered, um, for the first time in my life, I ordered gloves that have like a uh, battery heaters in them because I was so cold this winter and they were so cheap. There was, I was like, how can this be made? for this amount of money? And the answer is they were made in China, of course, you know? So, and they're so easy to order, blah, blah, blah. So is there a way that Amazon or companies like that can, you can, you can flick a switch and where you can be like, I, above all, um, really value like local sourcing. And so they just suddenly skew anything that you see, like the China stuff drops off the page and you're really given just the stuff that is going to be traveling, you know, less than 20 miles. So there's an opportunity there, I think, if we value that kind of local economies and, uh, you know, both at a local level and some of these bigger companies well. 
And what about those delivery trucks coming into the small cities and, and that sense that you might be living downtown, you might be walking to work, but you're still getting stuff driven in. You're saying, actually, if we could just still order it, but it's just driving a shorter distance or maybe being walked over from the farmer's market. Is that your perspective that we need to start to think not only about the individual, you know, walking 15, 20 minutes or cycling, but also thinking about how do we get those goods to have as short a distance to us as possible? Yeah, so this goes to so we're organizing a uh, a conference at the end of April called the Sustainable Futures Conference, um, and the the goal of that conference is to expand the idea. Again, I think the UK is ahead of us in terms of this conceptualization. We're particularly upstate New York. We're we're, we're we have sort of the pieces in place, but we haven't done the kind of conceptual visioning legwork. So, the goal of the conference is to say, look, sustainability is a huge multidimensional concept that touches upon basically every aspect of planning, design, economic development, justice, life, you know, uh, transportation, um, jobs, anything. We have to think of these things as that it's wide reaching and that they're all interconnected. Um, it's not just a niche environmental issue of like, let's recycle a bottle and feel good about ourselves. It's like, no, where do you shop? What kind of businesses are you investing in? Do we bring in a bit? Do we, for instance, do we bring in a business that's going to give our community 20 jobs, but is also going to give our community like high truck traffic from 7, 7 a.m. to 5 p.m., right? What's the trade off there? What are we valuing there? So I think bringing in that kind of conception for people that they're like, wait a minute, what, where I shop, what I shop, and the businesses that I kind of deal with are, are, are a huge part of my sort of footprint and extending that footprint beyond just like my little footprint, but like what's our community's footprint. So I think changing, for instance, like your grocery store, where are they getting their food? Is it a national chain? Is it like, or are they, are they supporting like locally sourced project? How can we, how can we push them to do that? And, and, and I think particularly in the U S it's become such a, like a political issue, you know, like sustainability has been again, pigeonholed as a sort of like Democrats issue, you know, and, but that's crazy because it's like sustainability is actually like preserving us beyond the next five years, right? It's like, we want, we want to have like robust communities that work and like, so that should be just like a universal thing. And I think the trick is using language that's not like trigger words for, at least in the US for like that divides people, but being like, how do we create like a viable economic development economy here, you know, that's like sustainable and resilient, you know, beyond just the, the, the near term. So that's what we're trying to do because there, there is like a, there's a full political spectrum up here. So you got, if you're going to get anywhere, you got to get pe all people on board. And I think there's, there's room for that. It's interesting because it's, it's really speaks to what we're talking about a lot or at the event that we've got coming up um, in, in a week's time is, um, is based around social impact, which has to, has to do with how you positively uh, impact uh, the community around it. But also one of the days is, is um, dedicated to systems change or system thinking, which is really what you're talking about. You know, it's kind of um, how these things are interconnected and how you need to think of places and cities as systems. Uh, and so you, you're looking at the way that, you know, the, the ordering online changes um, impacts all these different things. And what happens if you move this one piece over? How does that all fit together again? And getting everybody to think about it as a system, which I think is really interesting and yeah. also exciting uh, yeah. because they are cities are dynamic systems and you can um, you can change uh, one or two things and the thing uh, but actually that that has a cascading effect I think what's it's interesting a, it's too a big is, ask for these it's a big ask right like these economic development agencies which again have been faced with like years of disinvestment you know they, their their primary goal is like let's just attract some more jobs you know but it, like going back to your point it's like you can't airdrop like a tech industry into a city and think that it's going to have like beautiful effects on all communities, right? It's like, that's not how, I think they're still married to this kind of 20th century version of economics, which is that like, like line of infinite growth, right? We'll just keep on growing more and more jobs, more and more growth. So one of the speakers that we're bringing in is from uh, the UK, uh, the Donut Economic Action Lab, right? So that you want to place, you want to place economic growth within this like thin donut, right? Where you're not creating ecological degradation or social degradation. You're like balancing it so that it's just and sustainable. Um, and that's a big ask for, for old school economic development agencies where like, 
wait, now it has to be just and sustainable. Like, come on, man. Like, what do you, what else do you want me to do? You want me to cook your lunch? You know? And so, but it points to that systemic thinking, right? Which is like, yeah, you, you have to bring in businesses that are going to, their social impacts, their ecological impacts have to also be in line with, with our value set. So that, that's going to be a huge shift for this region. And we've seen what happens if you don't do that, because we've seen, you know, tech companies come into neighborhoods that, you know, we look at Silicon Roundabout uh, in Shoreditch in London, it's been the center of the tech industry in England for almost, I mean, at least 10 years now. And this is still one of the most deprived neighborhoods in the whole country. So these businesses turning up didn't change that. Uh, all it did was was polarize these two. And there's only so many coffees these people buy on their way to work or, you know, sandwiches. And even in that instance, most of them have coffee in their offices. So they don't, they don't even go, they've got lunch. I mean, they don't even go outside. So it's this, it's this kind of uh, bizarre knowledge um, that basically what's happened is like the real estate just got more expensive. Uh, and now the, also the pub got more expensive and the, restaurants got more expensive and the coffee got more expensive and and that's that's it that's all that that's all that really happened <laughs> so yeah um yeah and i th- and i think that um so so the thing that you do to prevent that um there are some interesting things happening in places like vienna or barcelona where they're looking at social housing or affordable housing and enshrining a certain percentage of downtown housing and I mean, like you said, I think that those are triggering words. I'm going to imagine for your for, for the communities who would say, "Well, what you're going to have, you know, social housing here? Like, what are you turning this place into?" So, I mean, is there that kind of would that cause a knee jerk reaction if you said, "Actually, we want to preserve a certain amount to make sure that you know the people who live here, their kids are going to be able to afford to live here, um, even if the prices go way up?" Would that would that have that same reaction of, "Well, wait a minute, you know, what do you mean you're going to?" you know, to create subsidized housing. Here. I think what happens in the US is people are like, oh, that sounds good. But then, then they'll never support it, right? They'll never vote for it. It'll, there'll be some like lip service, like we want to build a city that supports all the people. And then they like, don't don't actually put in place what needs to happen. I mean, going back to the question of like, um, these, like, will these industries be supportive? I think there's a real opportunity for, particularly in the US and particularly in our region, for the green economy to be potentially... To be well, there's two two way, ways it could go. It could sort of mimic the tech, how the tech economy, that kind of insular, like how many coffees can one person buy to support a, <laughs> to support a low income neighborhood, right? Um, or where you just if you if we're myopic about it, right? So that we just have like, you know, we train people who to like build solar panels and you know keep it kind of insulated. But there's also an opportunity for it to be much more expansive and inclusive if we have this kind of systems approach, right? So it's not just about like, because the Port of Albany just won this big contract to build offshore wind turbines, right? So that's going to bring 600 jobs, right? So the old school way of saying that is like, okay, well, maybe we'll in this low income neighborhood that's next to the Port of Albany, we'll train some people to do it. But really, most of the people are going to come from the suburbs and we create 600 jobs, la-di-da, great. But I think, the new way of saying it is like this is the this is the beginning node to uh, maybe we create like a wind institute that's like actually like um, an academy or a university where we train folks not just in like offshore wind but in like retrofitting right because retrofitting houses is a huge thing we have so much old housing stock and that's a huge source of jobs that could like support a whole city of just people like weatherizing and retrofitting homes right um or we kind of and then we like tie that to like local food systems right so let's create a whole network of urban farms here and train people how to be urban farmers and so there's like i think the capacity and the um possibilities of like a green economy to be a much more expansive community based um you know, viable economic development model than say like, a, you know, we tried that in our city too. Like we became, tried to become Tech Valley, you know, and did nanotechnology. And it was like a multi-billion dollar investment by the state. But like nanotechnology is not going <laughs> to, it's not going to lift everybody up. You know, it's like, there's a couple of people who know what the hell they're talking about and not, <laughs> you know. So anyway, that's like, I think I'm, I'm hopeful about that, that again, going back to the triggering worlds, I'm hoping that sustainability doesn't have to be a triggering word. Nanotechnology is too small to have a big impact. <laughs> but dum dum. 
Um, I just have one last question, which is, you know, you've kind of gone from living in very big cities to moving to these smaller communities. What's your sell for life in a small city? I think, yeah, I think the positive parts are you get like incredible affordability. Um, you can get your, you can live in a house that, that you wouldn't be, have been able to live in. You can make an impact in your community in really amazing ways, right? Like small prototypes um, and like in, small infrastructure interventions can have profound effects. The Troy Farmers Market basically was instrumental in turning around the city of Troy, right? The whole city. Um, there's a development going up in Troy that's going to basically connect the whole city to its waterfront and become the focal point of the city. So those kind of um, opportunities, I think, are really exciting. Um, small cities are usually, you can get out of them really easily. I remember living in New York City, it like took me an hour to two hours just to get out of the city. <laughs> this, like, I can drive 15 minutes and be on a hike in the middle of the wilderness. So that kind of access to the outdoors um, is really great as well. Um, and I think, yeah, you can start a shop. You can do things that are really exciting and, and have an impact on your community. Um, you know, if you want your place to be a sustainable community, you can do that. Um, so I think, you know, there in some ways, small cities are the like laboratories and prototypes and communities where we can test these things out and try them and 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 see how they work. And you know, I think when particularly when cha- when faced with the like facts about climate change, and then faced with a place like London or Boston or New York, we it's easy to throw one's hands out uh, up and be like. This is this issue is way bigger than any of us can solve. But when you're in a smaller community, not to say that there are multiple like wheels turning and 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 stakeholders and so forth, but the the problem is a little bit more manageable. And I think we you can begin to offer sort of a systems approach that is actually viable. And like this is how you this is how you turn around a small city, and maybe it offers some solutions how you turn around a big city. Because those big cities, they just need so much. They're, they need so much stuff coming in. They need so much food coming in. But like you said, if you're 15 minutes to a hike, you're much closer to food sources, to uh, potential agriculture, or you might be able to grow enough food to feed that immediate neighborhood. Is that where you see the difference in? I think in so. And like, yeah, you can, and you can like pass a zoning law that like really can affect the whole city. I mean, I think the requirements in small cities that you need everyone on board, which is hard because small cities sometimes have small town mindsets that like, ah, that that's not possible here. You know, um, the benefits of big cities is they have, they have a huge amount of like brain power. They have think tanks, they have people with great ideas. They can, they have budgets, they have, you know, donors. And so they can do amazing projects like that are incredible. Um, that's one of the challenges I think going forward. How can small cities retain retain and attract smart, smart people who want to stay here and and work on on problem solving in their community? But again, I think that's not a huge. Is it's just like we just need to sort out a couple things and just be a little bit better about how we market ourselves and how we attract ourselves attract you know people and businesses because who doesn't want to live in the small city, really. I'm sure there are people who are like, I can never live anywhere but New York. But if you offer like um, a few great restaurants, like uh, a, a place, a bookstore, a place to like um, meet your community, some concerts by a river, access to a hike, um, like a place that's diverse, like, and you have all those things and you also pay like a quarter of what you would. I mean, you go down to London for a week or go down for a weekend, but you don't have to be based there. You know, it's like, I think that um, that model of living you know, if there's enough kind of cultural stimulation and enough community stimulation and you feel taken care of and you have access to a a place that who wouldn't want to live there, I think, honestly. So that just leaves me to thank you for talking to me today. Yeah, this is great. Thank you. I I feel like we covered some ground. We solved it. (laughs) I think we did. No problem. I think the small city idea, it's got legs. It's good. Yeah, yeah. I'll (laughs) I'll think about forming some kind of uh, institute or think tank about it. (laughs) (laughs) Why did you found a think tank about it? Uh, it was, I mean, I was like, uh, you know, I was running an event series. I was trying to do some writing. I'm, I'm a writer. Uh, and then I was just devoting more and more time to writing about cities, I guess, and thinking about cities. And we had moved to Troy and I was like engaging with the community. 
And then as I was doing this event series, it got the event series got interrupted by COVID. And I was like, so mad. I was like, but we were just getting started. So I think it was a little bit of a, a sort of panic decision in the middle of the pandemic. I was like, I'm going to form an institute. But I talked to a lot of folks and they're like, you should form an institute about this. This is ripe. We need to think about these things. So, you know, one should never make big decisions in the middle of a pandemic except when you're making a big decision, <laughs> right? Except the most biggest decision. So we'll see how it pans out. Everything that we've done is remote. Uh, this, this conference is remote. Um, so it'll, it will remain to be seen what, the, what form the Institute takes on. I'm imagining having like a storefront, speaking of like the future of storefronts, where we have like a little exhibition space about cities where we can ha- bring in people off the street, maybe have an outdoor space where we prototype benches or like, you know, bus stops with like solar solar, uh, you know, solar roofing and like little um, uh, agricultural pots where people can grow their own food, you know, stuff like that. Um, We'll see. I don't know. I think we all have to kind of reinvent ourselves. But I'm also working on children's books. So that's that's how I'm scratching that itch. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, I'm glad you started it. And uh, I mean, I'm you're talking to somebody who started something about places for for in a similar way, uh, because I was getting concerned about traveling to all these places and then they seemed really similar and getting really annoyed that there was this kind of dumbing down of, of places within cities, whether they were, you know, newly developed, new developments being kind of finished and then being really that feeling of disappointment, which I hope does not come to these Rust Belt cities, you know, that kind of, we've spent all of this money and time and now it just, it's just a bit boring. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so don't do that. <laughs> uh, yeah. so, well, we're 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 um, familiar with disappointment, so I think that uh, yeah, that's not a problem. They default <laughs> to disappointed, so <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, thanks a lot, Rafe, and thanks. good to talk to you. Yeah. Okay. Have a good one. So, Martha, I want to welcome you to the Developer Podcast, and I'm going to start this conversation the way we usually do. I'm going to ask you to tell me a little bit about uh, yourself and a little bit about what what you do. Thanks so much, Christine. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, as, As you know, I've always been involved in the field of the built environment from different perspectives. Right now, my role, my most important role is as Dean at IE School of Architecture and Design here in Madrid and Segovia. And it's an international school. Uh, we have faculty and students from all over the world. And for me to be involved in academia, especially this unique institution that tries to connect with the real world is really a pleasure. Prior to this, of course, um, I've been working for many years with the Pritzker Prize organization. I've also been a curator, a writer, and just a lover of architecture, design, and the built environment, and especially cities. I have been following IE University and kind of your your work at IE for a few years. And I think it's it's really interesting um, that you were doing this blended learning the rest the, before the rest of us had kind of gone into this world of, of hybrid between the digital and the online. Your part-time global online MBA programs were ranked first in the world by QS 2020, second in the world by the Financial Times. You were doing this before... Um, before we, we even knew about it. And the world is catching up to you. So what, what are the advantages that you see in professionals undertaking this blended learning in an online university? And what have you learned, you know, being involved in this for the last few years about the advantages of, of that approach? Yeah, whoever would have thought that COVID would have changed our whole world so quickly and so much and made technology our primary tool for communication. And you're right, Christine, um, IE Business School, which is probably more than 40 years old, they were really pioneers in online education. Of course, we have many, many face-to-face programs, but they began this as a way to serve especially professionals and the international community that wasn't able to travel uh, for and leave their jobs or their home or their families for a whole year. In the field of architecture, because our school is 12 years old, and I always like to say we're the daughter of a business school, now there are five schools within the university. 
But we too began looking at innovative pedagogical methods several years ago. And what we did is we would have most of our um, undergraduate programs face-to-face, but we thought the internship component, the ability to be in the real world and understand how professionals in different fields work is important for our students. In order to do that, we uh, implemented online learning for part of the undergraduate programs. We were able to perfect things, even design studio online. We experimented a lot, lots of uh, trial and error. We also made a MOOC, one of the first MOOCs, or I believe the first MOOC about the architectural design process called Making Architecture. And what, what we saw is that um, just as architectural offices, other types of companies, of course, developers, banks, are using technology effectively, why couldn't we do it in education? And I think we all realize, especially today, our world is blended. There's not a hard line between online and offline. And I think, of course, there are techniques. There's a lot you have to learn about communication, about attention span, about software tools. Um, but all of that is are really tools of the trade and can be helpful in education and in the professional sphere. You mentioned this real-world approach. And also, I know you talk about having a holistic approach. Uh, and this international uh, and you know global perspective. Why is that important in real estate and in, and in architecture right now? I think if we look at the trajectory of real estate companies, um, we can see a couple of things. One, an increased professionalization of what they do, much more data-based, much more scientifically looking at trends, trying to understand many aspects of the real estate market, of the world, of the sector. So that that's one thing. Um, the second thing I think we see in real estate companies, uh, especially develop, development companies, is trying to expand their services rather than concentrating on just leasing or development or investment, there's an idea to be sort of one-stop shopping that the different facets of the sector complement each other and therefore they have expanded in their roles. Without a doubt, things are international, we're not local. So those three, three reasons, international in, is, is really what characterizes the field, professionalization, and then expanded services. And in order to do that, you really have to understand not only the context, you have to understand deeply your field, but you have to be able to talk with multiple stakeholders. And I think at, at, at IE School of Architecture and Design, uh, it's a school of architecture and design, but we're so fortunate to have as you mentioned, the business school, law school, a school of human science and technology, and also a school of public affairs that deals with policy. And so all of these together can provide that outlook on the environment. Uh, and then in our courses, we dig deep. Um, our students learn from each other. They learn from our professors. They learn from um, the context, the cities we're in and the ones we visit. So I think this holistic approach has many ramifications in the academic world. And um, I, I, find it, I find it exciting. I find it, it's a learning experience. Each day you find a new aspect to delve into. So what kind of a professional do you, would you see um, benefiting from undertaking the part-time global master's in real estate development? What, what we've done in this program, um, our global master in real estate development, uh, it, it has a backdrop of the idea that developers are city makers. So they need to understand the development process. They need to understand investment, finance, 
uh, construction, all of that. But they also uh, could benefit by understanding the interface with the city and how um, how the how real estate projects impact a city and how a city can in, can impact real estate projects. The, the Global Master is a part-time program, so that means that people can work, they continue to live in their home country if that's what they want, and they connect on um, Saturday afternoon, Saturday afternoon in Europe, it would be Saturday morning in North and South America, and it would be later in the evening uh, to the east of us in, in, in Asia. It, it allows people to continue with their life, but to dig deep and, 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 and gain more skills and also gain a larger perspective. This program is, is for people who are probably five to 10 years experience and they want to either progress in their own professional career, or maybe they wanna do a sideways shift and get out of one field that they're in and go into an adjacent field. And they would be the perfect candidates for this. Can you tell me a little bit about the residential and immersion weeks? Because I know you have um, a certain course structure. So maybe talking through uh, your learning in your own country, but then there is a moment where you 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 actually do a face-to-face. -face. So Absolutely. Absolutely. The first two weeks, we all get together uh, here in Madrid. And the purpose of that is to get to know each other and to realize the great strengths and different, um, the, the different outlooks that we have and how we can complement each other throughout the 15-month the course. Those first two weeks also are the more intense classes that have to do with workshops, with understanding um, different aspects, not only of real estate, but of presentation, working with clients, negotiation, things where face-to-face um, -face contact and longer sessions, longer periods of the day are enjoyable and, and can be uh, undertaken in a face-to-face -face way. It's also a chance to get to know some of the services of IE, to be in close contact with our careers department or our library, and just to, to really um, set, the, set the base uh, or the foundation so that the rest of the course will go well. We then have a week, uh, we've planned a week study trip together, and this uh, week study trip is planned for Mexico City, which is a totally different environment than Madrid. It has different uh, types of approaches and problems, and that's a series of visits to different types of companies, of offices, of sites, um, and, and understanding how to analyze a context and how to uh, adjust the questions for different places in the world. Then we go back online and finally we finish the presentation of the capstone projects, which is the culminating sort of thesis group project with two more weeks in Madrid at the end of the period. So it's a chance it's a chance to get to know how to communicate, to get together, to form the foundation, go off on your own, get back together in a unique setting, go off on your own, and then come back for the capstone and, of course, graduation and our celebration at the end. You have an agreement with C40 Reinventing Cities. And... What, I was wondering what that meant for your students and also, you know, how does tackling climate change feature in the program? Is that something um, embedded in it or is it something that you look at on the side? Um, th those are really good questions. Um, sustainability is one of the values of our whole institution. And we try to see sustainability broadly. It has to do with the built environment. It also has to do with building community, our individual behaviors, sustainability in, in businesses. Um, and in, in our case, in the Global Master in Real Estate Development, um, sustainability is one of the aspects that is woven into almost all of the subjects. I think nowadays we can't 
we we can't talk about the world without mentioning COVID and the changes it's brought. Well, likewise, we can't really talk about the world unless we understand that global warming is a reality and it does affect us, it affects our businesses, it affects our professional activity. So the agreement that we signed with C40, we recognize that this is an organization, a worldwide organization like us. They have a wealth of knowledge that they've gathered because of their close relationship with cities, the way they approach projects and support cities as they try to develop entrepreneurial holistic projects uh, for their cities is, is really an example. And they've offered uh, to share with us their database, they've offered to share their contacts, and they've offered to help uh, be form part of the final jury for the capstone. So we'll benefit from not only their information, but their knowledge. And again, it's a real world project or real world projects that we do in an academic setting to heighten learning and heighten the experience. So I think that just uh, leads me to ask you, you know, what do people do if they want to find out more? And are there any deadlines they need to be aware of that are coming up? We, we have a rolling admissions uh, program. So I would say they're not, I can't give you a hard and fast deadline. On the other hand, uh, yes, the program will start in April of this year. So it's better to connect to our website at IE School of Architecture and Design. There's a brochure, there's uh, a lot of information and someone, if you'd like to receive more information or a call, it's very, very easy to do that. And I might also mention, Christine, that we're very supportive of women in real estate. We think that it's a field where there are still obstacles, sometimes real and sometimes imagined, but we're ready to do our part. So we do have special scholarships uh, for women. So I would encourage them to apply soon because uh, the, those, although they also don't have uh, hard and fast deadlines, there is fierce competition and we definitely would like them to come to our program and not another master. So um, I look forward to welcoming students and Christine, I look forward to welcoming you as I hope uh, a guest speaker in one of our master classes. It, it's, uh, it's an exciting time for real estate and it's an exciting time for education. Absolutely, I accept. Thanks so much for talking to us today. Thanks, Christine. If you enjoyed this podcast and you like what we do, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com slash the developer UK. Thanks a lot. This podcast has been brought to you by the developer produced by Simon Mercer with music by Fortet. I'm Christine Murray, and you can reach me on Twitter at, at TC Murray.